welcome to Rising. We've got another great show for you today, and it's Monday, which means Bacha is with us. Bacha, you look lovely this morning, so nice to see you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Robbie. You do as well. It's great to be here with you, and we do indeed have a wonderful show planned for you. News Nation's Ali Bradley will break down how El Paso, Texas, is dealing with an influx of migrants at the border, which was definitely a hot topic of discussion over the weekend. Yes, it was. Speaking of, Martha's Vineyard has been at the forefront of the news all weekend after a group of about 50 migrants were flown to the sanctuary destination from Florida. Now, hashtag Martha's Vineyard racist was trending over the weekend after nearly 50 Venezuelan migrants were relocated to the joint base in Cape Cod this in the state of Massachusetts. Also plans to activate 125 National Guard members to help handle the asylum seekers' needs. Rachel Self, a Boston immigration attorney, blasted Florida Governor DeSantis for sending the migrants to the elite enclave in the first place. Let's watch. They were told there was a surprise present for them and that there would be jobs and housing awaiting for them when they arrived. This was obviously a sadistic lie. Not only did those responsible for this stunt know that there was no housing and no employment awaiting the migrants, they also very intentionally chose not to call ahead to any single office authority on Martha's Vineyard so that even the most basic human needs arrangements could be made, ensuring that no help awaited the migrants at all was the entire point. The CBP reported nearly 240,000 encounters along the southwest border in May, which is a 2% increase from April, and almost 2 million encounters this year alone. However, when asked about housing for the 50 Venezuelans in Martha's Vineyard, this is how one resident answered. The difficult challenges are uh, we have, at some point in time, they have to move to somewhere else. Right, we, we cannot, we don't have the services to take care of 50 immigrants, um, and we, we certainly don't have housing. We're in a housing crisis as we are on this island, and so we, we don't, we can't house everyone here that lives here and works here. We don't have housing for 50 more people. Which I think is, you know, the very hypocrisy that uh, Republicans were trying to point out in doing this stunt, which, which, to be fair, is totally a political stunt in my view. And I'm going to talk more about uh, that in my radar and what I think should be done. But look, what, you know, the point of this was, was to say, you know, you think 50 immigrants are difficult for your community to handle. Many, many times more than this are coming across the border and entering border communities every day. So if, if you're, you can't handle this, you know, the, the border towns might be somewhat better equipped, but, but not, you know, there's no guarantee that, that uh, immigrants stay in these communities. They actually don't have to. The asylum seekers, who are by definition not actually illegal immigrants while they seek asylum, while they're waiting for their cases to be adjudicated, they could go anywhere in the United States. There, so so I, I totally understand the point that Republicans were trying to expose, that, you know, blue enclaves elsewhere in the country are all like rah-rah immigration in theory theory, but are not, you know, dealing with what that means actually up close. You know, what was your takeaway from all of this? I, um, I agree with you. Of course, it was a political stunt. And, you know, the sort of lefty in me, the human in me, um, you know, you see these people being used in this way. Mm -hmm. And of course, one thinks these are human beings who are being put to use in a political manner. And that did make me uncomfortable. However, 
I think the point that um, Governor DeSantis was making is extremely important. The compassion that progressives, especially elite, rich progressives, express towards migrants, which is driving the Biden administration's total refusal to police the border. Um, you know, this compassion has curdled into absolute cruelty, the kind of cruelty that is being incentivized by their you know, holier than thou approach towards having an open border, it has inflicted insane amounts of cruelty on the migrants themselves as they make this extremely perilous journey because there is every incentive to do it right now, but as well on their working class neighbors whose wages are being undercut by this total mm. influx, influx of 2 million workers, people willing to work for less than minimum wage. This is hugely problematic, but to me, the real story here was it, it not just the delicious exposure of the hypocrisy of these rich liberal elites. I mean, Martha's Vineyard, 60% of the people who own property there are vacationers, are, are people who come just for the summer, meaning that 60% of the housing right now on Martha's Vineyard is vacant, right? These huge mansions for these people to say, we don't have the housing for 50 migrants while having lawn signs on their million dollar properties that say immigrants are welcome here and then turning around and deporting 50 people from their home with those lawn signs still there right i mean it turns out immigrants were not welcome there right within 24 hours they had mobilized to deport them and there is this footage of these you know rich white women weeping hugging the migrants and saying te amo you know while expelling them from their mm -hmm. rich Elite enclave and demanding that working class border towns. Right. Bear we actually the have that footage here. Burden. Let's play it. Here, yeah, here we go. Here's that footage um, of them of them uh, doing exact like celebrating. You know, putting putting these uh, migrants back on the bus <laughs> to get them out of town. Uh, you know, the self congratulation of these people. Like, oh yeah, we you know we took care of the the migrants. Yeah, for like 24 hours. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And the thing that I think is really important to point out is not just how hypocritical this is, but that this is the progressive playbook. They impose policies that make them feel holier than thou and better than their neighbors, policies that they can afford because they're rich. But as soon as it comes home to roost, then they get rid of it because the progressive playbook is impose policies that reflect the vanity morals of rich elites and then giving it to the working class as a burden to pay for it. That is the playbook and that is what we saw here on full display. Now, Ron DeSantis obviously knows what he's doing here and he knocked President Biden last week over his ability to scramble resources when it comes to rich liberal neighborhoods as opposed to border towns. Let's take a look at that. You didn't see him scramble to get his cabinet together when we hit record fentanyl deaths, which that fentanyl is coming across his open border. It's only when you have 50 illegal aliens end up in a very wealthy, rich sanctuary enclave that he decides to scramble on this. 
So DeSantis has also vowed to continue flying migrants to sanctuary states with Florida state funds and drew backlash from the left, of course. AOC chimed in on the situation, saying, quote, it's appalling that far-right politicians seem to have decided that the fall before an election is their regularly scheduled time to commit crimes against humanity on refugees. Don't normalize this. Lying to and trafficking people for TV and clicks isn't politics <laughs> as usual. It's abuse. Now, the funny thing is, is that earlier than that, that AOC had tweeted the clip of the woman saying te amo and weeping while expelling the migrants. And she had written, this is the best of us. <laughs> and, and I mean, I think that's exactly the point is, you know, to me, every time somebody tells you to buy an electric car, when you complain that gas prices is too high, every time somebody tells you that working class Americans should be paying off the student loans of, of, of the elites, of people who have gone to college who have that benefit, you know, every time somebody tells you to defund the police, these are policies that make rich, elite progressives feel good about themselves as long as the working class is paying for it. That was what, to me, what this episode symbolized. There's also a bit of um, uh, <laughs> extreme hyperbole in characterizing them as like human trafficking. I mean, maybe they were on their, you know, on their journey to the U.S. They might have been treated like that. But uh, but many of them, you know, there's I think some of them were genuinely confused or unsure of the destination they were being taken to. Others were aware where they were going. They didn't actually seem uh, very upset about it. I'll talk more about this in my radar. Um, you know, there are a lot of assumptions we make about uh, immigrants that, honestly, that the right makes about immigrants that I think are, are usually not accurate. Um, you know, th these people, I bet these people um, moved, the the, moved the average political view of Martha's Vineyard well to the right <laughs> while they were there. <laughs> uh, you, you know, the idea that you know, immigrants are coming here, like, in order to enact, like, more democratic or more kind of, like, far-left socialist policies, they're actually fleeing socialism. They're actually running for those po from those policies that have ruined their countries. They could uh, actually educate the residents of Martha's Vineyard and other places in the country a little bit about uh, what life is like under a politically repressive left-wing dictatorship. Um, so I, I don't like to see them, you know, used as as props at all. We need a we need a smart, humane immigration policy. No one wants immigrants. Pour, you know, pouring across the border in illegal uh, conditions because those conditions are unsafe for them. It's not. It doesn't make. It's not good for anyone. People die doing it. It's dangerous. It, it emboldens actual human traffickers and drug traffickers, etc. So we need to change the system so that people can come here without, you know, without resorting to that. Really, and, and then we don't know when they're showing up, and it's and, and that does cause you know the chaos, the mess on the border. So it would be great, in my view, if Congress did something to fix that. But we'll see if that ever happens. But I'll, we'll continue this discussion with my radar, which is coming up next. Robbie, what's on your radar? So in May, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law a bill that required Florida public schools to set aside 45 minutes of instruction on November the 7th for victims of Communism Day. So the point of the law, according to DeSantis, was to make sure that students had a grasp of communism's very real and very large death toll historically. In the 20th century, communism was responsible for an estimated 65 million deaths. Those deaths came in the forms of political purges, deportations, and mass murders, as well as famines, both deliberate and accidental. The Bolshevik Red Terror, the Holodomor in Ukraine, Mao's Great Famine. This is communism's body count, and it's extensive. 
So there are many victims of communism in Europe and Asia, but there are also victims in South America, people who flee countries like Cuba and like Venezuela. They're fleeing political repression, societal collapse, and economic hardship, hardship wrought by left-wing authoritarianism, corruption, and poorly planned economies. That's what makes this recent news cycle, the only thing everyone has been talking about all weekend, the migrant trips to Martha's Vineyard, so frustrating. Because in fact, there's just so much hypocrisy on display here. Among Republicans, yes, among Democrats as well, and most of all, and surprisingly, among the media. But I wanted to start with Republicans, because we discussed the other groups uh, in our top of the show a little bit. So I think Republicans are clearly using human beings here as part of a political stunt. Now, you might agree with the stunt, you might think it proves a valid point, but let's be clear, it's a stunt nonetheless. Further, if DeSantis thinks it's important to recognize the victims of communism, well, why is he treating them this way? Why is he acting like they're some kind of scourge? As my colleague at Reason Magazine, Fiona Harrigan, writes, if Ron DeSantis hates communism, well, then he shouldn't weaponize victims of communism. Harrigan points out that as recently as last year, DeSantis spoke favorably of the people who flee these regimes to find refuge in the United States. Why would somebody flee across shark-infested waters, say leaving from Cuba, to come to southern Florida, he has said back then? Why would people leave communist countries and risk their life to be able to come here? It's important that students understand that. Well, given that past rhetoric, I think it's a little rich for DeSantis to decide the best thing to do with victims of communism is to ship them to blue states. Now, that said, the hypocrisy of the Democrats and the mainstream media was certainly on full display as well. The arrival of the migrants prompted a full-on meltdown from affluent liberal residents of Martha's Vineyard, just as expected. Local political figures described the situation as a crisis, a humanitarian crisis, even an example of human trafficking. Which raises the obvious point, if 50 immigrants arriving in a U.S. community is some kind of disaster, well, what would liberals make of the fact that immigrants are arriving in border towns in far higher numbers than that every single day? Moreover, while the mainstream media's official narrative was that the migrants had been hoodwinked and mistreated, many said they'd been treated just fine and were thankful for the opportunity to travel further into the interior of the country. Watch this MSNBC reporter go completely off script and report the truth. So uh, there's activists here, Jose, that are saying that these people were victims of human trafficking. They want an investigation from the Justice Department onto what Governor DeSantis is doing, what Governor Greg Abbott is doing, because they're saying that these people are being abused and used uh, to bring a border crisis deeper into the country. Now, I can tell you they are not angry at uh, Ron DeSantis. They are actually thanking him for having brought them to Martha's Vineyard where they were they were very well received but other people well they're saying they're being used as political pawns they don't resent it for now uh, and they know they're the lucky ones Thank you. they don't resent it they know they're lucky to be in our country hmm. think about that now let's discuss some facts immigrants who come to the u.s seeking political asylum well they're definitionally not illegal immigrants they are allowed to stay in the u.s until their asylum claims are adjudicated Oftentimes, they end up staying near the border because that's where they have to go to court. But there's no law saying they can't travel elsewhere. While Democratic official after Democratic official act as if there's just no capacity to handle these migrants, well, there's no reason it should be solely the responsibility of border jurisdictions to do so. Here's D.C. Mayor Mariel Bowser completely missing the point. 
We're not a border town. We don't have an uh, infrastructure uh, to handle uh, this this type of in a level of immigration to our city. But we will will create a new normal here in our infrastructure and have a, a humane welcome for people and an efficient um, you know service provision. But we we don't have the ability. We're not Texas. Yeah, and the people coming to America, uh, you know, from Europe didn't intend to stay at Ellis Island forever either. So we have to be prepared for the whole country is going to receive immigrants if that's the policy. Now, the truth is immigrants want to come to the U.S. because it's the most prosperous and free country on Earth. Contrary to the negative view that many spoiled native citizens have of the U.S., immigrants have tasted alternative political structures like communism, and many of them don't care for it one bit because the U.S. is prosperous and free. We will always have immigrants who want to come here. The solution is for Congress to act, not feuding state and local officials. The federal government should make it easier for immigrants to come to America legally, to work here, to pay taxes, to enrich our economy so that they aren't a drain. That's the best way to stop the flood of illegal, unplanned immigration over the border, which is dangerous for the migrants themselves, can overwhelm local officials, and can destabilize border communities. But as long as so many politicians treat immigrants the way Democratic officials are treating them, a boon to our country, as long as they stay somewhere else, like Florida or Texas, well, we're never going to see any progress. Government officials of both parties who claim to be pro-America, pro-immigrant, anti-communism should come together and fix this broken system, and they should do it right now. No more political stunts. No more outraged, affluent liberals. So that's my take, Bacha. Um, I, we discussed it also in the top of the show. Uh, I see a lot of uh, kind of hypocrisy really on all sides here, uh, media hypocrisy, Democratic hypocrisy, some Republican hypocrisy. And they, they are human beings. And look, you can't, you can't shut down the Like, people are always going to want to come to America because it's a great country. We criticize, we criticize it all the time. We criticize its, you know, the government's policies. I think they were you know, too— I criticize the government all, all the time. I don't like our foreign policy. I think we were far too, far too restrictive, anti-libertarian when it came to COVID. But you know what? We were a beacon of freedom compared to much of the rest of the globe. People will always come, seek to come to America, and we have to plan for that in a thoughtful way. Um, we, we don't want them streaming across the board, you know, coming through through the desert through horrible conditions that are unsafe for them. That's not the right way to do it. So let's do it the right way. And that falls to Congress, which, of course, does nothing constructive whatsoever. But ideally, they would take that up. Um, such a beautiful radar, Robbie. You really hit all of the points. Um, I think it's so important what you said about how this um, MSNBC reporter, you know, before the narrative was solidified, you know, accidentally reported that the migrants were very happy to be at Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> yes. and I I'll just throw in one piece of uh, a data point that I think is really important. Um, the Houston immigration courts uh, only approve about one in 20 um, asylum cases, whereas the New York City uh, immigration courts approve three out of four asylum cases. So anybody telling you that these migrants don't want to be shipped for free up to northern states, up to liberal led <laughs> states, just really does not know what they're talking about. Um, and I think that they, it's very clear to them um, where the appetite is um, for this. And, and I agree with you. Somebody tweeted over the weekend, probably the best tweet I saw on this, um, you know, the new let them eat cake is let them stay in El Paso, right? <laughs> Not our right. problem, right? They are welcome here as long as they're welcome there.
Right, and the whole theory of it, and I agree, I agree with this theory, is that immigrants can enrich communities. I understand if they're, you know, if they're not operating on the up and up, if they've been forced into illegal conditions or they're going to see crime. Or I, 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 there is a concern that many conservatives have that they're, you know, taking rather than contributing because they're not paying taxes or they're, you know, taking advantage of welfare or something. I hear all that concern. Although if we just legalize them, then they are paying taxes and they are contributing. So I agree that you know immigration thoughtfully can. Enrich our communities, um, but but they, that was like the Martha's Vineyard people were totally rebelling against that idea. No, get them out of here. Get them out of here. We we don't know how to how to deal with them. We can't handle them. We don't have enough houses. But as you said in in the uh, in our other segment, there's there's empty houses there. Most most beautiful mansions that are empty most of the year um, um, in that community. So it just it just doesn't make any sense. Um, and and I would like to build more houses everywhere. You know what we actually need to build houses? We need more laborers. We need more immigrants and they will do that they will do that work because they're happy to be here listen to them they love america uh you know so much of i we criticize the kind of you know woke left's sort of uh you know everything is like blame the, the united states you know every uh, this country is so racist and so sexist and so evil and so bad immigrants minorities coming here do not have that view of this country they are coming here because they think it's great and they could they could actually teach the people at Martha's Vineyard a lesson about what actual political repression um, looks like uh, which I which I think is very funny but Republicans often fail to take advantage of that uh, of that interesting dichotomy because they're still in this mode that I think is wrong of thinking like no we immigrants will come here and they'll be Democrats because like they can't think outside <laughs> that box even though how, how many times do we have to demonstrate that 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 especially the communities from Cuba Venezuela etc will vote for for very right-wing policies in some cases they, they some of they Trump did better with them than previous Republicans did so uh, I, I think we're maybe coming to understand new things about uh, about immigrants we got to update some some priors here and I hope Republicans do that as well and we'll have more rising right after this Bacio, what's on your radar so I talk a lot about the failures of the progressive left to represent the working class, but today I want to talk about something that they're doing right. Back in April, Congressman Andy Levin, a progressive Democrat from Michigan, introduced exactly the kind of legislation that progressives used to be known for. The bill is called the Guaranteeing Overtime for Truckers Act, and that's exactly what it does. It guarantees that truckers get overtime pay. I was shocked when I learned that truckers don't get overtime. Um, overtime was originally mandated by law for anyone working more than 40 hours a week by the 1938 Fair Labor Standards Act. But there was an exemption included for truckers because they didn't want truckers working more than 40 hours a week for safety reasons. Back then, this wasn't much of a big deal because truckers were some of the highest paid blue collar workers in the nation. Plus, they were covered by other labor laws that protected them from being exploited. But trucking was deregulated in the Carter administration, and today truckers often work way more than 40 hours a week with no overtime pay, the only wage workers now exempt. They are overworked and underpaid for a job that has never been more central to our economy. Truckers often aren't paid for the time they spend loading and unloading either. So we're in a situation where many truckers work 14, 15 hour days, five days a week for an average pay of $48,000 a year. And this despite the fact that every morsel of food you put in your mouth, a trucker made sure that you had that. 
Enter Congressman Levin's bill, which proposes to, quote, amend the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 to remove the overtime wages exemption for certain employees and for other purposes. That's it. There's nothing else in the bill, nothing else added in. It's just a bill to protect three and a half million truckers, the main artery of our economy, from being exploited. It really came out of the pandemic, Congressman Levin explained to me a few weeks ago, specifically a combination of exploitative working conditions and a supply chain crisis that had revealed how essential truck drivers truly are. Then last year, the Department of Transportation released a report that suggested that giving truckers overtime would help a lot. So I introduced the simplest bill I've ever introduced, Levin told me. Quote, it came out of wanting to solve the aspect of the supply chain problem related to the shortage of truckers, which makes it take longer to move goods and more expensive to move goods. And it's contributed tremendously to inflation and all these bottlenecks. The bill would attract more people to trucking, but it would also solve another major problem, which is trucker retention. And this would improve safety conditions on the road because truckers would be more experienced overall. Congressman Levin even got a Republican to support the bill, which is co-sponsored by Senator Van by Congressman Van Drew of New Jersey. Sounds like a no-brainer, right? But after introducing the bill in April, Congressman Levin lost his primary in August to Haley Stevens. Still, he told me he plans to build momentum and push the bill as long as he's in office. And he got a big boost a few weeks ago when Senators Ed Markey and Alex Padilla introduced a Senate companion to the House bill. A companion bill is a bill from one chamber that duplicates a bill in the other to expedite passage of the bill in both chambers. It's simple, Senator Markey explained in an email. Quote, truck drivers should receive the pay and benefits they're rightfully, they've rightfully earned. Instead, they are unfairly excluded from overtime pay project protections enjoyed by other workers in our economy. This benefit is the least that drivers are owed for revving up our economy and keeping our supply chain strong amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Indeed. As 25-year veteran truck driver Gord McGill put it at Newsweek, Quote, the status quo of taking advantage of truckers has been with us for decades, which is a long time to treat one group of people, the group so essential to our functioning economy, as less deserving than everyone else. Paying the workers who carry our economy would go a long way toward preventing drivers from looking at their pay stubs and rightly concluding that they should seek other opportunities. The big question that remains is whether Republicans will support the bill. The GOP has been making a lot of noise recently about being the real party of the working class. And from an electoral point of view, they are right. Working class Americans of all races have been switching from the Democratic Party to the GOP in recent years. And while traditionally the Republicans have represented the side of big business and the rich, President Trump really took an ax to all of that, implementing an economic agenda that worked for the bottom as well as for the top. And it's no mystery why. The bottom 25% of wage earners saw a 4.5% wage increase in 2019. What with Trump replacing NAFTA, enforcing the southern border, starting a trade war with China, implementing tariffs, and cutting regulations for small businesses. To me, these seem like they were obviously effective policies, but even if they weren't, they sure made working class Americans feel seen and respected for the first time in probably 50 years. In the post-Trump era, there is currently a battle raging for the soul of the GOP. And while Democrats want you to believe that that battle is over values and democracy, it's not. It's over whether the GOP will return to being the party of free trade and free markets or whether it will continue the Trumpian economic agenda, paying heed to the voter class over the donor class.
Andy Levin's Guaranteeing Overtime for Truckers Act is the perfect place to start. Yet thus far, none of the Republican senators I reached out to were willing to commit to voting for it, including those who build themselves as populists. I hope they will. Some real competition for working class votes to replace the handshake agreement between Republicans and Democrats that sold them out would be a really nice change. Hmm. Now, Robbie, I know that you are not on board with the populist economic agenda, but surely even you could uh, agree with the idea that uh, truckers deserve overtime pay. Yeah, well, look, it's uh, it seems I, I'm not as familiar with this issue as you are, of course, but it, it's from my cursory examination. It looks like they're excluded for overtime pay, uh, really because the government decided almost 100 years ago that they should be, right? They're not covered under, so this, the law, the, the Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, New Deal era program that is set, you know, sets various various infringements into the market, I might say, but, uh, <laughs> but kind of arbitrary does not include um, truckers in this category for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, this is a this is a hundred year old law that probably has very little to do with what the reality of working conditions are for many sectors and should be revisited. So I, I don't know that I necessarily disagree that that they've been arbitrarily excluded for for good reason. And absolutely, you know, our truckers um, deserve um, deserve fair compensation. I mean, I argue, I argued against. Um, uh, you know, various infringements that the government has imposed on them during the the COVID era, right? Truckers were some of the people who fought um, kind of vaccine requirements most uh, most aggressively for good reason. I'm, I think it's for good reason to fight the vaccine mandates, regardless of one's uh, working conditions. But they could make the very compelling argument. You know, they spend most of their time, uh, you know, not interacting with other uh, with other employees in like a workplace setting, right? They're they're driving across the country in trucks by themselves. So you know, why do they? need, uh, why would you, where's the compelling public health reason to force this on them? And then, of course, we, you know, we learned there's not really a public, uh, a compelling public health interest to really force it on anyone since it doesn't keep, uh, you know, doesn't keep cases down, doesn't really contribute to keeping the spread down very much. But, um, but yeah, I, and I think it's important to keep, you know, shining a light on what workers actually want, you know, what their, what their concerns really are. And you're right that if the Republican Party, you know, wants to take them seriously, at some point it can't just be like, oh, yeah, we're against wokeness, so you have to vote for right. us. They really do have to offer workers something, something tangible in some way. So. Right. And I think it's just really important to point out. I mean, when I when I talk to workers, people like truckers, people like, you know, Charles Starworth, who's working the railroad, you know, people who are um, in these in these jobs, um, um, they don't want government handouts. They just want dignified work. Mm -hmm. They just want to be able to work for a decent wage um, and and in, in safe conditions. That is so crucial. And that should be something that every Republican can get on board with, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Batya, and we'll have more Rising right after this. Even though Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin was just elected a year ago, he's making swift changes. According to The Hill, the state's Department of Education released updated guidelines on, quote, model policies for the treatment of transgender students in public schools. The department will now require students to be separated by their biological sex for any school program, event, or activity, including extracurricular activities. These updated guidelines come after Yunkin ran on promises of parental rights in schools and against teaching critical race theory 
in the classroom. Now, according to Axios, this is specifically targeting, uh, we're doing bathrooms again, the favorite subject of everyone for some reason, saying that students will have to use the bathroom that corresponds to their biological sex. This matters, uh, obviously, because you could be, uh, you know, at that young age, I guess, in theory, saying that you're transgender and you haven't transitioned or, you know, gone through any of the stuff yet because generally they actually do not do it that early. Um, and previously, schools would have been allowed to then let you use the bathroom of the gender you're claiming rather than your biological gender. So, so that's a, a, a pretty significant difference. I don't know why we, would, we just wouldn't make it the policy for what, what I've said it should be. Why can't there just be a, like a third bathroom for people who are who say they're you know not they're transgender or they're non-binary whatever they need some kind of special accommodation which is actually what a federal although I think uh, I think the Obama administration said you couldn't even do that you really had to do it no it has to be one or the other but they get to pick which didn't make any sense I, honestly none of it makes any sense from doing this at a macro level I would certainly just kind of let the schools figure out how to work this out on their own but what do you think Bacha? I think it's a really tough call because you have sort of competing, conflicting rights at stake here. You know, mm -hmm. on the one hand, the right of children who don't want to see, you know, other ch children of other gender in their bathroom, right, or of other biological gender, let's say, in their bathroom. On the other hand, the right of those children to be in the bathroom that feels right to them. And especially because we know that there is this kind of, I mean, I believe it's a social contagion, but it is happening. The social contagion is real. These children do believe that they are, you know, one gender or another. And at that point, you're sort of, um, forcing them into a situation where I mean, I could, I could just imagine a lot of sort of bullying situations happening in bathrooms. You know, if you have a, a child who presents as female, but who's still biologically male, who's now being forced to go to the boys bathroom, it, it's it's really, really complicated. And um, I, I, I think I, I you know, I, I think um, Governor Youngkin has been very good at listening to his constituents. He's been very sure. good at listening, you know, taking the temperature of where parents are at. And I think it's it's you know, I, I would be surprised if this didn't reflect a kind of, you know, majority of what parents want in his district because he's so sensitive to that. But at the same time, I do think this is a very difficult issue. And I I'm you know, we need to take it seriously as a difficult issue. It's not it's not simple, I would say. I agree with you completely. It's not simple. Um, look, there is a lot uh, even take, you know, trans the transgender issue out of the question, even even without that issue, there is bullying that goes on in bathrooms and uh, and and locker rooms. Uh, we've seen there was a clip of, of uh, violence that went viral in a in a school bathroom. It wasn't I don't think it was in Virginia. I can't recall where it was, but just uh, boys beating up another boy um, uh, it, it, like bad stuff. Happen. You take the politics out of it. Um, these can be unsafe and harmful environments and ones that schools should work to fix. And probably my view would be we should probably move toward like extending just greater privacy in locker rooms, in mm -hmm. in bath. Like it's honestly, it's kind of weird to allow like the, like the amount of just like letting everyone change and be naked and everything in front of each other on it. I mean, that can be really hard and embarrassing for a lot of kids. Right. It can invite all abuse and violence, um, you know, move toward having more private areas uh, where people can like, you know, not be leered at by other people or, you know, be subject to abuse. It seems like that should be done even apart from the transgender issue, right? Am I crazy on that? 
Well, it, it's so interesting. You know, we, we as Americans, we're very puritanical. Like other cultures don't have this children that's share true. bathrooms of different gender. But 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 that's who we are, you know. Right. And But it's the same thing on both sides of that. That's who we are. We are very puritanical. We do like to keep our gender separate um, in bathrooms. At the same time, who we are also is a culture, you know, at least on the left, that is encouraging children to see themselves in this new light that is making things more complicated. And it is not the child. It's not the 12-year-old child fault who thinks that you know who's a biological male who thinks that um they are a, a girl like that 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 they are growing up in a culture where that is now being encouraged and, and at that situation you have to deal with the fact that this is a child um and 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 they have sensitivities as well so you know what whatever our political orientation is wherever we fall on this question um i i just think it's so important to think about just like you said robbie the safety of every child the comfort of every child and then you know but but that's but but that can come into conflict, right? You have a child who their comfort level says, I should be allowed to use the girl's bathroom, even though I still, you know, I, I'm biologically mm -hmm. male. And then there are other girls there who might say, no, that's not, that makes me feel uncomfortable. These are really difficult issues of our time. And I think the area to really, to really push back on, on the wokeness or whatever you want to call it is really with the, the sports teams where you have, you know, clear mm -hmm. differences in ability, even, yeah. even at the, not just at the professional level, but frankly, even at, you know, the high school or even younger level in some it's, it's more pronounced in some sports um, than others uh, it's not you know it's not socially constructed despite what the Atlantic said did you see this um, this uh, our, our friend my yeah. colleague at reason Liz Wolf tweeted about it this Atlantic article that um, uh, with the, the, read this quote I'll, I'll read it for you decades of research have shown that sex is far more complex than we may think and those sex differences in sports show advantage for men researchers today still don't know how much of this to attribute to biological difference versus the lack of support provided to women athletes to reach their highest potential. So yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's just totally, I mean, you could find some research, some professor to agree with any, you could find someone somewhere to agree with any ridiculous proposal, but no, we don't, we actually do know to attribute it to biological difference substantially. Women, m most women can't, you know, run faster or out wrestle or out dribble or whatever it is, most men, not because they're not getting enough, um, you know, love from their parents or whatever, or the society, or whatever it is. It's just cold biological reality. And I, I think it's absolutely right to preserve female only competitive athletic spaces. That I agree with absolutely. I think that's a little different than the, the bathroom and, uh, and locker room question, which is, is really one of of harassment that is that can be difficult to solve even independent of the question. And the polling actually reflects what you just said, Robbie, that, you know, a lot of people who feel very, you know, sympathetic towards transgender, transgender issues overall are, you know, support kind of drops off when it comes to um, sports. And I think that this sort of ties into something that um, uh, comedian and commentator Bill Maher said over the weekend, uh, which was that parents will be voting for former President Donald Trump just to keep their kids from being what he called, you know, quote, indoctrinated by transgender ideals and critical race theory, even even though they think that Trump is what he called a creep. So let's watch that. To me, the two biggest issues are democracy and the environment. Those are my two big, one and two. But I don't have kids. I know people who say, I have kids. And I don't like it when they come home and say, uh, they divided the class today into oppressors and oppressed. And if I change my sex, I don't have to tell my parents. Yeah. There's shit like that going on. That makes people go, you know, I agree. Donald Trump is a creep. He is everything wrong that could be stuffed into one man.
but I have these other considerations. Like, to me, the... Okay, here's my problem with that. It's that um, many of Donald Trump's supporters in 2016 and 2020 said that exact thing. Like, that's something that I think Democrats don't realize. I cannot tell you. Like, I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who voted for Trump, and very few of them did not say something along those lines mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, he's not the best person in the world. Yeah, I don't like the tweeting. Yeah, it's embarrassing. It's undignified the way he expresses himself. But NAFTA, but deaths of despair, right? But immigration, which are all extremely legitimate, important issues that are just as legitimate as I don't want my child coming home and saying that they're an oppressor, or that they're oppressed. Right. And that that's the thing that I think that, um, you know, I wish somebody had said to Bill Maher, like that is also true of many of your Republican mm. neighbors. They do not approve of his personality. They do not approve of the way he expresses himself. But there are things that are as important to them, perhaps even more so that make it a legitimate choice. Hmm. Absolutely. It'll be interesting to see uh, if that is put to the test with someone who fights, um, who, who is, you know, good from a from a new Republican perspective on all of those issues and stands up to Trump like a Ron DeSantis, you know, goes up against him. And uh, then we'll put it to the test. We'll see if they go. Yeah, well, we, you know, Ron DeSantis is, I, I think, even even the most ardent Democrat would concede is like a more, you know, responsible. Maybe they wouldn't say that. I don't know. Maybe maybe they wouldn't. Maybe he's the next Hitler, too, because that's what everybody has to be. But <laughs> it's certainly more restrained in 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 his, uh, I guess, his, you know, speaking and tweeting. He doesn't actually tweet that much. So we'll, we'll see if that's the case, if it's really they just needed to signal opposition to these specific policies rather than endorse Trump as a human being. Um, that, that we're going to have a, a test of that, I suspect, in a in a short while, but uh, we'll keep paying attention to this and we'll have more rising in just a minute. A surge of migrants entering from Mexico has overwhelmed Border Patrol at the southern border, and with shelters and processing centers over capacity, authorities in El Paso, Texas, have been forced to release more than a thousand travelers ineligible for expulsion into the streets. According to reporting from News Nation, many migrants are congregating under overpasses in El Paso because they have no U.S. sponsors and lack the money needed to leave the area. Local authorities called the surge a, quote, manageable crisis and say for every migrant seen on the streets of El Paso, 10 have been sent through the shelters to their final destination. Southwest correspondent for News Nation, Ali Bradley, has reported extensively from the border. She was just in El Paso and now joins us from Phoenix, Arizona. Ali, welcome back to Rising. Thank you guys so much for having me. Obviously, a really important topic to discuss today. Absolutely. And thank you so much for your excellent reporting. Tell us a little bit about what you saw in El Paso and what you're seeing in Phoenix. Yeah, so when we first arrived in El Paso, there were still hundreds of people on the street and they were released by Border Patrol after being processed. So this does mean that they have documentation to claim asylum or to continue their journey in the United States. Now, when we went to the Welcome Center, some of that video that you saw inside, that's what the city is doing to help out a little bit. They have created a Welcome Center, kind of like a temporary shelter where they allow people to use charging stations. They allow them to connect with their sponsors if they have them. Now, you mentioned the sponsors. What I learned from the chief deputy um, of the city manager, he was explaining that at least 50 percent of these people have a sponsor or a family that they're linking up with. But that does mean that 50 percent of them don't. 
So those folks are going to be waiting for bus fare, a plane ticket, things like that. And so what happens is they actually are busing them to New York and Chicago. And so in New York, uh, they have sent at least 50 buses that we know of right now. They have sent a few to Chicago. But what the what the city manager was asking for was nine buses a day. And again, for the most part, those buses are going to be for people that don't have a sponsor because they are needing some assistance with transportation. So they have sent hundreds of migrants to New York and, and a few to Chicago as well. We did talk to a family from Venezuela. There's a young little girl in this video that, that you kind of keep seeing. She's in a blue T-shirt. Her name's Camilla. And she was telling us she's from Venezuela and she was really excited to go to school, really excited to meet friends. And what was really, really heartbreaking, you guys, is that she was talking about they just didn't have money or jobs and they didn't have money for food. She said we were always hungry. And so to hear a 10 year old girl talk about that was was gut wrenching. And that is the tragic reality of what's happening here along the border. And again, these people have been processed and federally released. They have been released by basically the administration. These aren't just people that have crossed over and they, they can't be apprehended. They, they have been apprehended at this point. They have been released with documents, with paperwork. So there's a lot of moving parts here. But again, the city is doing what they can. They said they've already surpassed the $1 million mark. They will be seeking reimbursement for FEMA for that. And what in, in taking them to Chicago and New York, places like that, what, in theory, is like the next step in the the migrants' journey? Like, what are they hoping to get in those locations? So those are locations where they might know somebody. They don't mm -hmm. have a sponsor necessarily, but they might have family there. They might have somebody there. Uh, when we were talking with Camilla and her mom, she they were saying that they know some people there, that they have some friends there, and they're hoping to work hoping to start a better life. And so when they get to those destinations, that might bring them closer to where their final destination might be. Maybe they're not going to be living in New York. Maybe they're going to be going to New Jersey, but that gets them closer to where they're going to be versus being on the streets of El Paso. Yeah, we watched your report and it is so heartbreaking. This beautiful little girl talking about how excited she is to get an education and make friends and how she was always hungry. Um, but that seems a pretty clear cut case of an economic migrant as opposed to an asylum seeker. I'm wondering if you have a sense of what the breakdown there was. I mean, um, they're here with papers to show up to um, court for asylum. Is that correct? And it doesn't seem like that case that she would qualify. Talk us through the difference between those things and what you saw on the ground. Yeah, so one of the things that Alejandro Mayorkas says is that just being here and crossing illegally is not grounds for deportation and every single migrant should have the opportunity to claim asylum. So I asked them if they're claiming asylum and they said yes, but like you said, they weren't mm. necessarily facing persecution when they were in Venezuela. They are more economic migrants. So when it comes down to it, they wouldn't qualify for asylum by the terms that the congressional law puts out, but they do have a right to claim. And so that will allow them to be here for some of them don't have court dates for two to five years so that once they say the word asylum, they get to go through that process. Hmm. That's because the system is so overwhelmed with cases just like these. I mean, you create right. You're creating a system where then you're going to have so many people seeking asylum, whether legitimate or not. And then it's going to take so long to adjudicate it. It's, you know, mm -hmm. kind of de facto letting them um, stay here. And is it the case that they often have to be uh, would these cases actually be heard in this in the in places like El Paso and Phoenix? If they're because you're talking about them moving elsewhere, do they have to come back here to appear in court? No, 
No, they will get a, a reporting instructions for whatever destination they're going to. Okay, there's no way to get them to come back to El Paso. But you asked kind of about the breakdown. I would say from my experience, what I have seen, I have seen when I've been started covering this over a year, about a year and a half ago, I would say we did have a lot of asylum seekers and qualified asylum seekers. Now, I would say it's majority economic migrants. Most of them just want to be here to work. Most of them just want to seek a better life. A lot of them have left their kids in other countries. We talked to a woman who was living on the streets for two days. She was trying to get to California to be with friends, and she left her three children in Peru because she was living in Peru after Venezuela. And she said that she did not expect this to be what she what she got, basically. She said this was not the American dream she hoped for. She thought she would get here and get documents and be able to start working right away. And that's just not the case. They can't legally work while they're claiming asylum. So they have to work under the table. So the messaging that's getting back is kind of crossing wires and it's it's not necessarily the correct messaging. And the other thing is we asked why El Paso right now, why the spike in El Paso? And the, the deputy city manager was telling us the messaging that's getting back to migrants is that it's safe to cross in El Paso right now. The river's dried out, they can walk right across. It is the next kind of big hub next to Eagle Pass where we're seeing people drown and lose their lives. So they know that they can cross right here and they also know about the buses, he says. So the messaging right now is getting back to them that it's open, that they're gonna be welcomed, that they're gonna be bused if they don't have transportation. So that's those are the things that Kamala Harris is supposed to be kind of working on is getting to the root of these problems and correcting the messaging. Hmm. It would seem like a huge kind of waste of opportunity, frankly, if they're going to be here anyway, they're going to be here for years while the asylum cases are being worked out. And you say you've talked to people who want to work, but who, who might have difficulty finding work only because of what the law allows them to do. Yeah, it seems kind of interesting, right? If they want to be here to work and they're economic migrants and the door is pretty much open to them, why aren't we allowing them to pay into the system and pay taxes and be and be part of that. I don't know. I, I mean, again, it's forcing them to work uh, under very, very tough conditions for very minimal pay. One woman that I talked to from Venezuela who actually walked in the caravan with, who now lives in Oklahoma City, tells me that she's breaking stones to build pools and it's extremely hard work, but she's not doing it legally. She's doing it under the table. And that is a situation that a lot of these migrants face once they get here is they might have a job lined up and they know they're able to work, but it's not going to be legitimate work right and so that is the situation that a lot of people are calling on the administration to look at and to reassess and to reassess the situation because a lot of them can get those agricultural hmm. visas but they need to be expanded outside of that if they're going to allow this hmm. seems like that would be a no-brainer ali bradley thank you so much for joining us and sharing your reporting thank you as always take care you guys thanks we'll be back with more rising right after this Mr. President, first Detroit auto show in three years. Yeah. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. That was President Biden as he kicked off an explosive interview with 60 Minutes' Scott Pelley. However, he was at odds in that remark about the pandemic being over with future host over the Young Turks, Nina Turner. The former Ohio state senator tweeted that the pandemic is not over. What do you think, Batya? Pandemic over? <laughs> I say yes. Over, over and done for sure. What do you think? 
The pandemic has been over for a long time, but not because our leaders ended it when it should have been ended, but because they are like the president leading from behind. The American people at some point realized the truth of the matter, the actual science of the matter, which is that this is endemic and we have to live with it. And um, are the people in charge have been, you know, simply following that lead. I mean, this is we've overseen the real death of expertise because it was the American people that decided when the pandemic ended. Um, where are you on this, Robbie? Yes, it is over. It has been <laughs> over. Everyone who wants to give themselves reasonable protection against severe disease and death can do so. I encourage you to do it. It should be your choice, obviously. And anyone who still wants even beyond that protection, you can still, and, and if you want to, that's fine. Wear one of those really, uh, really good masks that have like 85% filtering out of particles, according to the scientists, whatever. Fine. You are so protected if you do that. Good for you. For everyone else, it's over. And it's been over. Amen. Um, so we want to bring you a few more moments from this piece. Uh, later in the interview, Pelly pressed Biden on new inflation numbers and Biden's economic woes. Let's take a look at that. Mr. President, as you know, last Tuesday, the annual inflation rate came in at 8.3%. The stock market nosedived. People are shocked by their grocery bills. What can you do better and faster? Well, first of all, let's put this in perspective. Inflation rate month to month was just uh, 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 just an inch, hardly at all. You're not arguing that 8.3 is good news. No, I'm not saying it's good news, but it was 8.2 or 8.2 before. I mean, it's not. You're, I, mean, I can make it sound like all of a sudden, my God, it went to 8.2 percent. It's been, it's the highest inflation rate, Mr. President, in 40 years. I got that, but guess what? We are. We're in a position where, for the last several months, it hasn't spiked. It has just barely. It's been basically even. I guess it's good news that it hasn't gotten any worse. That seems to be the president's standpoint on all of this. I don't know. And which is fine, true. It, uh, the economic you know, conditions aren't deteriorating as rapidly as they looked like they were doing a few months ago. But uh, it's, inflation is still way too high for many people, for working people. Um, you know, food prices, energy prices still too high, although gas has come down quite a bit, which is good. And, and that's, all, you know, that's all to the good. And that might improve Democrats' uh, prospects come November. But it is still quite high by historical standards, no? It is still quite high. You know, on the one hand, you know, before the student loan forgiveness debacle, I would have said, look, you know, there's only so much the president can do about the price of groceries, for example. Obviously, that's being impacted by the war in Ukraine. The price of gas is being impacted by his energy policy, which I think is very bad. But, you know, there's some of it that he really can't control. But but he just pa passed a, 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 a policy that is going to um, flood the economy with money, um, raise the deficit in, in the form of this um, student loan forgiveness. So I think that that really showed where his um, where his heart lay. My, my main uh, opposition to that was not even the inflation argument. It was mm -hmm. the unfairness of it and the injustice of it. But a lot of Republicans were opposing it on inflationary grounds. Um, so at that point, I think really his claim to care about this, his claim to sort of be doing everything he can um, is quite facetious. Gas has 
has gone down, but that's because he's been releasing these um, reserves, right? That's not a good thing for us, right? That's not a good thing for, for our nation. Instead of sort of, you know, pushing drilling, you know, instead of saying, oh, you know, let's bring back the Keystone XL pipeline, um, he's been depleting the reserves. So I, I, I feel very worried about that. And I, I, I you know, it, it's not as bad as it was. He's right about that. But he is not, he, ca he cannot claim to have been doing or have done everything in his power to bring it down. Yeah, basically every political figure uh, who pretends to care, who even pretends to care about inflation, runs into the problem that, well, then why are you voting for even more spending? Because invariably, this is a problem with both parties, right? <laughs> they always, well, the Republicans especially, that criticize Democrats for all the reckless spending they're doing when they're in charge, and then Republicans take power and spend just as much, if not more. Democrats then spend even more, but they have less of a, even pretending to care about that. Runaway government spending, a large, according to economists, I didn't make this up, large contributing factor to inflation. So. You know, Biden obviously has to pretend like it's not that big a deal because, you know, part of the government spending in, in, in also spending that was in the Inflation Reduction Act, the oddly named to, uh, to for my taste. But when it came to Taiwan, uh, Biden said that U.S. forces would indeed defend Taiwan if invaded by China. But he seemed to be at odds with his own administration. Let's watch. We agree with what we signed on to a long time ago. And that there's a one China policy and Taiwan makes their own judgments about their independence. We are not moving. We're not encouraging their being independent. We're not let that's their decision. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes. If, in fact, there was an unprecedented attack. After our interview, a White House official told us U.S. policy has not changed. Officially, the U.S. will not say whether American forces would defend Taiwan. But the commander-in-chief had a view of his own. So unlike Ukraine, to be clear, sir, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion? Yes. Hmm. Which is quite a commitment. Uh, and, and the interviewer there, um, Scott Pelley, makes a great point that, well, we're not even committing ground troops for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So you're saying we would actually commit ground troops, actually military forces for Taiwan. That would be far beyond what we're doing for Ukraine. And what we're doing for Ukraine is already something I would argue that a whole lot of American people don't support, don't think is the right strategy, and that, that does risk you know, an outbreak of World War III, actually committing our own military to defending Taiwan would much more directly, or in theory at least, cause World War III. So I guess it just becomes a question of, is Biden saying this because this is a kind of deterrence sort of thing? Like, he's saying we would do this so that they don't, China doesn't invade, not that we actually would defend them, or maybe we would actually defend them if China invaded. I, I don't know. It's so hard to tell because the administration is not being clear, and it's, you know, it's different based on you know, what Biden says, what the administration says, uh, and what do you make of it? Well, I don't know what sense it makes to say U.S. official policy is different than what the president of the United States right. says right. he is committing to, right? That just makes no sense Well, it could sense be in Biden's me, case, know? because maybe he's saying things and he's not actually <laughs> in charge of anything. They just let him go out there and talk, and actually the right. well, so decisions exactly. are being made by grown-ups. 
Well, that's a, I mean, that's a very dispiriting um, thing to, to contemplate, right? I remember when President Trump was president and you would have these people from his cabinet um, secretly or anonymously saying, oh, we are undermining him. Like, that's really problematic. If the president says this is our policy, you know, it's it's very strange to me to have people come out and say, actually, that's not our policy, you know, that there's something um um, really scary to contemplate about what's going on there. Um, you know, it's a very difficult, difficult question. I, I totally agree with you. I don't think that the you know the the American people has an appetite for this. I'm sort of anti-interventionist. I don't I don't see why we should be getting involved in these things. Um, I, I it's very hard for me to imagine China actually taking that step right now, given um, the 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 difficulties with the Chinese economy right now. I mean, it's not actually doing very well in terms of projections. Um, all of these sort of pro, you know economic projections about how they were going to overtake us as an economic superpower seem now to be um, very, very premature. Um, you know, I, I, I said this about, about Ukraine and Russia, and I was totally wrong about mm-hmm. that. So, you know, um, um, I, 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 it's very hard for me to imagine that China would take that step right now. But I, I, the idea of committing U.S. troops to something like that seems to me to be insane. And so um, while I don't like the idea of the president's cabinet undermining him, um, I also hope that our official position has not changed. Well, and I agree with, I, I share the impulse to, of course, oppose China invading Taiwan. Taiwan of deserves course. to be free of and independent, course. as do all nations or pseudo-nations where, where the people you know, want to live free of the kind of tyranny that China and other repressive governments represent. I wouldn't want to live under, so they have political repression, their COVID policy is draconian. Um, I, there's so much that I would want to live under, and I, I sympathize with everyone who wants to live free of oppressive governments. But then it's, it becomes a reality check. Like, what can we actually do to help? And are we will? Are the people willing? The American people willing to commit actual forces to doing this kind of thing? And that's where our leaders often just presume, oh yeah, right, everyone would be fine with that. But they don't listen to the actual people, which opposed it or quickly tired of it in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in other places. And right now. I don't think love what we're doing in Ukraine, which is partly responsible for, um, you know, the, the food prices, energy prices that we're experiencing. Now, before we go, one more clip of this interview. When asked about running for re-election, Biden left viewers with a cliffhanger. Here's that. Look, my intention, as I said to begin with, is that I would run again. But it's just an intention. But is it a firm decision that I've run again? That remains to be seen. The White House has brokered an agreement to avert a nationwide rail strike, but it has the potential to fall apart, threatening economic disruption. The strike deadline was originally last Friday, but was avoided by the deal, which was reached by President Biden. The Hill reports that the agreement would mandate two-person crews, cap health care costs, and allow workers to take time off for medical appointments or other scheduled events without being penalized, all key concessions won by the unions. The deal also provides 24% raises over five years. But nearly 36 hours after the agreement was announced, rail workers said they still did not have concrete details on sick leave and voluntarily assigned days off. That raised doubts about how strong the new contract language truly is. Hmm. So, Robbie, where are you on this? Well, I mean, that's concerning. Look, I absolutely support the right of workers in the private sector in particular to uh, organize for better conditions, better pay, et cetera. That's what they're doing here. Uh, It looks like management 
met some of their demands and a reasonable compromise was worked out. Look, this is all to the good. <laughs> what, what do you want me to say? I want them to get more compensation, you know, without like fundamentally breaking our infrastructure. I think it would be a disaster if they strike. It, we, we absolutely want to av avoid this at all costs. Um, you know, it could just be our supply chains are already stressed, our food, energy, other prices already out of control. This would make that so much worse. Um, so now is a terrible time for a strike. Although, yes, I totally I understand how this works. Uh, they, this gives them this gives the, the laborers, the organizers more power in this situation because we're so dependent on what they're doing. And so they yes, they have the right to ask for more uh, for more accommodations. It looked like they got a lot of them. So I, I really hope that that the strike is still averted. It looks like they had a reasonable deal in place last week. So I really don't want it to fall apart. Um, you know, you've got your uh, finger on the pulse of the labor movement a little bit better than I do. What do you make of it? So I was talking to Charles Starworth, who's written for us at Newsweek about this um, very eloquently. He works on the railroad, and um, he was telling me that to, to a lot of people, this felt like a very sort of um, politicized moment for the Biden administration ahead of the midterms. Um, his concerns specifically, he did not feel were addressed. Um, the two crew um, component of this is two two person crew component of this was very important to him um, because he felt that he feels that um, a lot of the conductors are being phased out. They want there to be just one engineer, but that's really unsafe. I mean, if you think about, you know, he compares this to, to, to pilots, right? If you think about a, a plane, you always want to have a two-person crew, at least the pilot and the co-pilot. And of course, you know, you don't have human cargo here, which is obviously infinitely precious, but you do sometimes have, you know, chemicals are extremely dangerous. And there are situations where, you know, the engineer or the conductor will have had a heart attack, you know, and who's going to take over at that point. So that was very important, but he, he felt that this was sort of a, a little bit of a panacea, um, I believe that he did vote for the contract, but um, now feels that it, it, you know, a lot of the things were not addressed. For example, um, the trains keep getting longer and longer so that they'll have few have to pay fewer and fewer people to drive them. And this can be extremely problematic because you'll have a train roll into a, you know, a tiny American town and block the only road to a hospital, right? P uh, you know, there was a situation where a baby died because they could, the, the train was just parked there and it was a hundred miles long and there was just no way for them to get to the hospital. Mm. So things like this are really important. Um, I will say, I, I, to me, what's so interesting about this is that um, um, it's it, th this really isn't a fight about pay, although there is a pay raise. I'm sure you know everybody feels good about that. But that was not the most important thing that I kept hearing over and over. It was about the safety of working conditions and the autonomy of workers to be able to have a little bit more control over their schedule, a little bit more say about when they're taking days off for really important things like right. being sick or a child who is sick, things like that. And I think that's something things that the left often misses. For. Things you just don't exactly, know. They come exactly, up. Exactly. Um, you know, that it's not always about money and wages because a lot of these guys are really well paid. It's about autonomy. It's about having control over your schedule and working conditions and safety. Mm. Well, rail workers are set to vote on the tentative deal reached between unions and railroads on Thursday morning. If any of the 12 rail unions involved fail to ratify a new contract, Nearly 125,000 rail workers could be headed for a strike, which again, I think would just be really, really bad for the country right now, which is not to say that they don't, you know, have a right to, they can, they don't have, they're not required to work. They can stop working at any time and they, you know, they can do so in order to have more 
or their um, their demands met. So my understanding is they they they've gotten. So now they get an additional day, or maybe it was more than one day, or maybe it was just one day. I can't quite recall. Maybe you do. Of one, sort day, of one day a month. Yeah, a f one day a month of flexible um, time off, which they didn't have at all before, which does seem really you know hard because medical things come up, right? What if you, what if a, a kid is sick? That kind of thing. Um, one day a month is uh, is is I, that seems like a significant improvement from zero to one day a month. That's you know twelve days a year. Um, obviously, it, it could be better than that, but uh, but if they want more than that, I, I guess is is that what the dispute is over now? So the problem is is that um, so after one year you get one week of paid time off after two years two um, after five years I believe you get three the problem is with unpaid time off right so they're they're saying look um, that's fine for paid time off but if I have an emergency I want to take an unpaid time off mm -hmm. I want to be able to say I just can't come in today and when you take unpaid time off as a railroad worker they instituted a point system to where you get penalized for it so after a certain amount of points you could even get five so that and that's for unpaid time off, right? Um, so so um, that, that's what they're really trying to to ratify. And I, I think there was also um, um, a, a very emotional component here because the railroads, in trying to argue why they shouldn't have to make any of these concessions, argued that all of their billions and billions of dollars in profits had come from you know quote innovation, right? And uh, profits coming from you know stocks and investments. Um, as opposed to the laborers. And I think people felt very insulted by that. You know, um, the thing that should happen when an economy relies on your labor is you should be able to demand more as a result of that. I mean, that's sort of just fair, right? And what happened was the Biden administration stepped in to stave off this strike. Um, at, but really what we want to see, what I want to see is truck drivers, railroad workers, the people mm -hmm. who really we rely on for every morsel of food that enters our mouths to survive, um, they should have this kind of bargaining power. So you, it's kind of one of these situations where you love to see it. Like you, you love to see people taking um, the leverage that they have because they are so important to the economy and saying, we're not gonna do this anymore for, for conditions that don't meet our needs. I mean, I, I love to see people get what they deserve and not have the supply chains totally collapse because they go on strike. It would be really, that would be, a really terrible thing Would. to have happen and it, it's I think it's absolutely right for the government to try very hard to to avoid that you know rail is an interesting sector of our economy in that what right, I think the you know the, these are this is a private company, there's two private right companies that essentially own all the rail um, that are relevant for this conversation. But, you know, it, it so intersects with the government and, you know, with they go across public land and everything. So it's one of those kind of messy public-private partnership where at the end of the day you have a corporation that is earning all these profits but, you know, has to rely on a lot of government policy and favorable treatment and agreements and all these other things that end up turning it in, you know, it's something between a, a corporation and a, and a public utility. So mm -hmm. it, it ends up being, it's, you know, it's hard to, you can't just be like adjudicated on pure sort of, you know, private ground because it's not, it's a, it's partly a, a public resource, even a government resource. So it gets, uh, it gets very tricky in the details. So I just hope they work out something that really is fair, uh, fair to people working because like you said, they're very important, but that does avoid a strike, which would just be catastrophic and is not something anyone should want to happen. Uh, you know, even you can be you can be pro workers and want workers to get what they're owed. Absolutely. You know, I've been against putting all sorts of new requirements on workers from COVID and everything else uh, that they don't want. 
but um, you know, let's let's try to work it out and not have there be a strike. That's what I would say should happen. Amen. Mm. More rising right after this. Here's some big news. Governor Gavin Newsom is unequivocally running for president in 2024 if Biden does not. That's according to some sources, some fundraising sources, who told the publication The Wrap that he's absolutely in if Biden is not. And according to this article, he's expecting that Biden will, after the midterms, say that he's not running and then and then uh, we will have Newsom fighting with Kamala Harris for the crown, uh, which will be very interesting. Two Californians going after it. Um, there's been some speculation for a while that uh, Newsom is very much interested in it, which I find um, interesting. Uh, I don't know that uh, that uh, what you know. What do you think about Newsom, Bacha? I, I mostly associate him not being a Californian. I mostly associate him with very strict pandemic restrictions, incredibly strict pandemic restrictions that he himself did not follow at all times. There was the infamous, you know, what was it, the French Laundry, mm -hmm. Manhattan Laundry? Where where was this laundry? The, it wasn't a laundromat. It was a restaurant. <laughs> French Laundry. Um, so I don't know that he has a sterling reputation everywhere, but uh, perhaps many Californians feel differently. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I think that the uh, outbound move rate from California is 60 percent, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, <laughs> people vote with their feet. I don't know. To me, he's one of these people who, like, looked in the mirror and thought he looks like a president and so decided that, you know, like, remember the Beto line, you know, I was just born to do it, born to do it, right? I, I, I agree with you. I mean, his national reputation, it's not just COVID. I mean, look at the crime in, in California that we see every day, uh, the destruction of beautiful cities like San Francisco in Los Angeles, the homelessness population, the way that the his administration has handled homelessness and crime, which seems to only incentivize both of them. I, I just think that he is sort of a perfect standard bearer for all of the failures of the progressive movement of late. And I think that that's how he's viewed more generally. Um, meanwhile, though, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who he may be running against, uh, shattered the gubernatorial fundraising record, raking in a whopping $177 million through the beginning of this month. Uh, the new report by Open Secrets found that his campaign brought in over $31 million since January of 2021, and his state-level PAC has brought in $146 million in the last three years. There's been talk that DeSantis might run for president in 2024, putting him up against former president. President Donald Trump, perhaps, um, who's also left people speculating whether he'll jump back in. Mm. Robbie, what do you what are what what do your what do you make of a potential Newsom uh, DeSantis uh, uh, lineup? Well, it would be interesting, and of course, this, uh, Newsom has been challenging DeSantis to a debate. Uh, he said that I think over the weekend, uh, in response to the Martha's Vineyard stuff, the the migrant um, shipping, which is like, if you want to, if you're so incensed about that, why don't you, you know, make a plan to take in more migrants or something like that would be a, right. rather than debate DeSantis <laughs> over it, uh, which is not something I, I don't know if that's something DeSantis would do. We've I've talked about it on the show before, but they have a under his sort of comms people, they have a very uh, interesting philosophy of what kind of media appearances he does. He speaks to local media, but generally will not do adversarial, adversarial or oppositional national media. He famously turned down a, a request to be on The View because you know, he wants to speak to conservatives 
um, probably independence, but not. Uh, he has this theory that when you talk to the mainstream media or the progressive media, the adversarial media, it's, they're setting the terms, and it's always going to be a gotcha kind of situation. I don't know how he would feel about uh, debate might be might be different, but uh, yeah, look, if Biden doesn't run, I guess Newsom will be uh, a real uh, contender. I, I still think. Kamala Harris, by virtue of being the vice president, is going to have a really inside track to get. And I know she's not particularly popular. I mean, really, there's no one in the Democratic coalition. Or maybe you can come up with a name I haven't thought of who uh, who, who who rivals sort of Biden's popularity, which is and, and Biden's popularity itself could certainly be higher. But uh, it's a pretty it's not a very deep bench that uh, that. That Democrats seem to seem to have. Uh, I expect DeSantis will challenge, uh, or will go for it in 2024. I, I think he'd be foolish not to. It's it's his time. You have no idea who who the kind of conservative media will have seized upon as as their kind of standard bearer by the time you get to like a 2028. There could be a lot of other figures in the mix. You know, you could have people, your Tom Cottons, your Josh Hawley's, your Nikki Haley, all these people who are kind of always names are coming up. Um, right now, the the, the field is really being cleared for DeSantis, possibly to have to take on Trump if Trump, assuming he does go for it. But uh, I think that's going to be his, his best shot, and, and he should definitely take it. Now, new polling shows Trump's favorability among registered voters has dropped. According to the NBC poll released Sunday, 34 percent of registered voters said they have a positive view of Trump compared to 36 percent last month. Hmm. I don't know. What is that telling us, Batya? Well, I will say um, one of the very few people to predict Trump's victory, Ann Coulter, who was sort of laughed out of the room when she said mm -hmm. this on Bill Maher famously, she said over the weekend, can we just make Ron DeSantis president today after the Martha's Vineyard uh, debacle? And so, I, I mean, I, I think she has a really good finger on the pulse of what's going on on her side. And she wrote a, a piece a couple of weeks ago saying just Trump is done. Um, you know, I, I think, it, you know, the, the, the difference between his rhetoric in 2016 and 2020 and now is you just can't overstate how big that difference is in 2016, 2020. You know, he spent 90 percent of his speeches saying to his followers, they've stolen everything from you. You know, today, all he talks about is they've stolen everything from me. And I think that that has cut into his ability to um, tell people to tell American voters that he is their tribune and he is there representing them because he's so clearly engulfed with his own grievances and it's very little uh, <laughs> time left over for theirs. So I, I think Ann Coulter is a good person to watch if you want to know what might be coming down the pike. And I, I you know, I, I think that would be an exciting uh, uh, matchup. Uh, Newsom DeSantis certainly, certainly would get at a lot of the burning questions that Americans are asking themselves every day, a lot of the culture war issues and a lot of the economic issues as well. Yeah, she, interestingly, Ann Coulter, uh, turned on Trump uh, earlier than a lot of other figures uh, yes. because she's really, uh, immigration is one of her major issues, and she perceived that he was not living up to his promises, his commitments on, uh, on border security, and she was really angry at him for that. And has now, I think, uh, correctly diagnosed. Or is I, I see her often arguing against other people on the right who are still, you know, Trump loyalists, saying, "But he didn't deliver the things he said mm -hmm. he was going to deliver." Um, actually, I saw her arguing against a lot of kind of election conspiracy stuff, saying like, "It's not." It's from her standpoint, she's saying that it's no mystery that he lost. I believe that he lost because he didn't do the things that I wanted him to do that he said he was going to do. It's very interesting. 
Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. Income inequality in the United States and the UK has become so wide that while the richest are very well off, those in the bottom decile have a worse standard of living than the average person living in the poorest countries in Europe, such as Slovenia. This according to new analysis from Financial Times columnist John Byrne Murdoch. Income distributions in the UK and particularly the US are significantly less equal than in other Western nations. In the UK, the top 10% earn almost five times the bottom and the US, it's more than six times. Byrne Murdoch contends that consequently, Britain and the US should be considered poor societies with some very rich people. Uh, I totally disagree. I don't know what you think about this budget. <laughs> look, I look at this and yes, it's true. We have, we have more, much more wealth. So we have more wealth inequality because we do, we're a very large country with a lot of people. We have a lot of very rich people in it. And we, we do have a lot of very poor people. But on average, our living standards are still, are still higher. Look, you can find, you know, you can find some small, homogenous European societies where the standard of, of where the standard living conditions are pretty good and you know they have a good welfare state and they take care of each other and that's fine I always get annoyed when we combine those we compare those places to the entirety of the United States which is you know massive uh, geographically massive has way more people has far more regional differences uh, is heterogeneous in terms of race and ethnicity and background and and also has vastly different governments and like kinds of industry like we're a very diverse big country so comparing all of us to just like Norway is I think ridiculous but by any measure we are we are a very we are a very wealthy country and it, though we do have poor people that maybe we should do more for we talk, can talk about different policies I mean we have we have better in a lot of European countries they have smaller homes they have you know less uh, they don't they can't heat their homes they don't have appliances like dishwashers things like that um, it, it's it's very it's, it's reaching to say we are poor societies because of this but but uh, maybe you maybe you disagree about you no, I totally agree. I think oh. this is nonsense. And I think there's a slate of a sleight of hand here. He's comparing the bottom 10% of Americans to the average Slovenian. I mean, what how, what is that going to teach you exactly? Right. It reminds me a lot of this quote from, uh, I wish I remember his name, is a Russian philosopher um, who was sort of persona non grata. I think he was sent to a gulag by, by the Soviets. And he used to say, you know, Solzhenitsyn, we wanted no that's who you're talking about. Probably, yes. Yes. He said we wanted nobody to be poor and they want nobody to be rich. Right. I mean, like the problem with the with the society is not that people are rich. Inequality is not a problem if your poorest person is a millionaire. Right. right. If you know what I mean, like the problem is not the gap. The problem is, is there a dignified standard of living accessible and available to every person in your country? Is there upward mobility? We do have a problem, but the problem is not that the poor are poor. The problem is that we have limited upward mobility for the working class. And this is something leftists don't understand. Like there's a real tension between having a truly equal opportunity society and, and live, having a welfare state that caters to the bottom, that caters to the poor in the way that, you know, more, more socialist oriented societies do. That's not what working class Americans want. They want upward mobility. They want reasonably priced housing. They want good wages that, you know, for dignified labor. And this whole mentality that you judge a society based on, you know, of course, I totally agree with you. 
you. The dependent poor, we have to have some sort of solution for that. Homelessness, you know, the, a drug addiction, people who are at the bottom, they deserve to have attention. They deserve, the most vulnerable deserve to have a society that cares for them. But that is not how you judge a society. And I, it really bothers me when you have countries like Sweden, whose main export is 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 a, an app called Angry Birds, sitting there <laughs> judging the country that created the vaccine that, you know, saved millions and millions and millions of lives, if not billions of lives across the country because of the innovation, innovative spirit, you know, that we have here. The problem is not the billionaire class. The problem is not the rich. The problem is not people who employ millions and millions of other Americans. The problems are much smaller. It's their problems of upward mobility for working class Americans. How many people are in the middle class? It used to be 60% of our society was in the middle class. Now it's down to 40%. How do we get it so that it's 70%? I mean, these are sort of much smaller questions, but to indict an entire society in this way by comparing us unfavorably to these European countries that produce absolutely nothing, I mean, I, I'm calling foul. Yeah, no, I agree. And they, uh, they look, you, you, there, are, there are dirty parts of Europe. There are miserable parts of Europe. There, again, there are parts where the, I think the average like apartment size, we compare, we complain about the house, housing prices here in the U.S. Totally legitimately, I think there should be a lot more housing. I got a lot of ideas for how to build more places for people to live. But the places uh, people live in many European countries are, mu are much smaller on average than, uh, than, what, than what even our less well-off people, you know, not comparing to our mansions, but what, what a standard dwelling unit is for someone in the U.S. So it's a little bit of a sleight of hand. I agree with you. And a lot of these countries, like I think Switzerland, Switzerland's doing great. It's a great place to live. I think it ranks higher or sometimes ranks higher, just about the same on like the market freedom index. Like it's not a, it's not at all a socialist country. It, it has mark, it has very robust working markets. Maybe it provides more, um, a more even uh, reliable social safety net. You know, that's not even something I'm against doing in the U.S. We should, you know, we can talk about what the right way to implement it is. I think a lot of us liked the kind of Andrew Yang sort of uh, guaranteed income approach more than some of the, you know, uh, uh, food stamps or other kinds of welfare um, ideas. But look, yes, uh, obviously, most people agree that a country needs to do a certain amount or even a better job of taking care of, of the poorest off. But you don't, you don't reduce inequality by like yeah, by like punishing you know, the people at the top. It's, it's good that we can have wealthy people here. We just got to make sure the whole society enjoys the benefits of the vast wealth that the U.S. has. But like I said in my radar, right, people, people want to come to the U.S. because it is better. This is where they right. want to come because this is where the freedom and the prosperity is. So. Right, exactly. And, and I, I think that too often what the left wants is for more people to be living on the social, you know, on the safety net, you know, as opposed to having more upward mobility for people to get out of it. Mm. Um, long and short of it is, it was great being here with you today, Robbie. Thanks, as always, for keeping it real and for all the great commentary. And I will be watching you and Brianna for the rest of the week. Thank you so much, Bacha. It's always a pleasure. And for the audience, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And also catch us on the Plex TV app. We might have more news to share on that front at a coming date. But for now, that's how you can watch us. And I look forward to seeing everybody back here tomorrow. Take care.